Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is Josh Summers, your host, and I'm very happy to have you here today for this uh, opening episode for the new season in 2021. And as you can probably hear in my voice, if you're a regular uh, listener to the podcast, that my tone is a bit down, uh, quite a bit down, actually. I'm, I'm incredibly upset and disturbed, like so many, about the violent insurrection and mob attack of the Capitol or assault on the Capitol in the United States last week. Um, this is something that I have more or less feared from the beginning, as soon as Donald Trump announced his candidacy for presidency. And um, it seems as though the, the, the worst fears of, that I anticipated are, are somehow, unfortunately and regrettably, being realized right now. Um, and I know uh, it, it can probably will feel unwelcome to some of you to hear someone in the spiritual space or the yoga meditation space speaking at all about politics. And I just want to speak to that for a moment um, before I go on with some of the other introductory comments for this new season. And I should just say, if you're not interested in any of the introductory comments for this new season, uh, that's fine. Uh, Next week there will be a new Dharma talk out and um, the regular podcast season will unfold starting next week. This is just an introduction to this new season. But with regards to the connection between um, spiritual life, spiritual practice, and politics, uh, I know from my own little dabbling in, in any kind of political commentary or mentioning of anything to do with the political sphere that there's often some pushback that I receive from people who feel like a, a someone in my position or my sphere shouldn't be speaking about it at all, or even if I speak about it, it's somehow confirmation that I am sort of betraying my own unenlightenment or my own lack of spiritual attainment in some sense. And speaking on politics is is definitely not my forte, which is why I tend to be more or less quiet on it, not because I don't care or don't have strong views. It's more that I feel like the, 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 the views and uh, understanding of the world and the dynamics of political discourse that I, uh, the way I, uh, that align with the way I see things, these views tend to be much better articulated by other people. And, you know, I can give you a few, I'm going to give you a few references for those, those sources. But um, I, I, I tend to defer to the more articulate, more knowledgeable uh, voices on, on that topic. Um, but I do try to support the views and opinions and ideas and understandings that I, I, I uh, find healthy, that I find uh, f- supportive of social justice, that I find um, conducive to uh, political harmony and, and a way of overcoming tribalism. And, and one of those voices is, happens to be a friend of mine named Robert Wright. Now he's a, uh, a guy that I, I initially met on a meditation retreat but he, as I came to, to know him, discovered that he was quite a celebrated public intellectual, um, a journalist for many years, an author of many New York Times best-selling books, 
on uh, things like evolutionary psychology and religion and human evolution and all sorts of interesting topics like that. And for many years, I've, I've even considered myself to be a kind of informal student of Bob's, that I have followed his, uh, his online conversations with public and other public intellectuals through his own uh, work on his platform called Bloggingheads TV or bloggingheads.tv, which I'll include in the show notes, uh, and his sister site called Meaning of Life TV, for which I did a few interviews a few years back um, before I really dove deep into this podcast and, and sort of ran out of time to host interviews on a second site. But through kind of a strange confluence of events, um, namely the, uh, the tragic and untimely and incredibly unfortunate death of a dear friend of mine named Michael Brooks, um, I came to start talking to Bob both privately and then publicly about ways that uh, his worldview, and, and I agree with him on this, but his worldview is, in a sense, an antidote to many of the factional energies of tribalism that are just utterly aflame right now. And if I can try to explain this, but the reason why Michael's death facilitated in a very odd way my recent conversations with Bob Wright is due to the fact that the week after Michael died, on his own show, The Michael Brooks Show, which was a very celebrated um, left and progressive political podcast, uh, Michael was going to host an interview with Bob Wright on his show on reactionary politics, tribalism, and cognitive empathy. And um, when he passed, due to a very unfortunate... Um, medical condition that took everybody by surprise. Uh, Bob Wright was one of the first people to reach out to me because he didn't under, he didn't realize at the time that uh, Michael and I were good friends. I knew Bob independently. Michael knew Bob independently. And Bob had put together that Michael and I were old, old, old Dharma friends ourselves. And um, Bob saw that Michael and I had co-written a book called The Buddhist Playbook, which... Um, is on sale if you're interested. It's on sale on my site, and all proceeds are, are donated to uh, Michael's um, family that are, are really supporting his ongoing work, particularly his sister's uh, energy in there on that. But uh, but Bob and I started talking about uh, what Michael wanted to talk to Bob about uh, around cognitive empathy and sort of attenuating the. The, the, the really the excesses and the, the violent harm of tribalism. And one of Bob's followers on Twitter suggested that he and I, or that Bob has continued that conversation, that would have that conversation at the time that it was scheduled. And uh, just because I think Bob knew that, discovered that I knew Michael, he said, well, why don't you and I have that conversation? And that spun into a series of conversations at the beginning of last fall around cognitive empathy and other things, um, which is really the ability to, to see the world through someone else's eyes. It's not necessarily the, 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 the literal or the, or the conventional sense of empathy, which is to feel what another person's feeling or feel what somebody else is feeling, but to really more cognitively take the position for how someone else might see things 
so that we can ultimately more uh, more accurately engage with them to to know what they're thinking, what they're strategizing, how they see the things helps us have a more comprehensive view of a dynamic and engage with it more wisely and skillfully. And over the course of those initial conversations, it started to occur to me, and this, this coalesced even more after I recorded a tribute episode to my late friend Michael called The Dharma of Michael Brooks. And in doing that, I realized that my other friend Bob here had a very compelling worldview that that contained its own kind of dharma. And, and Bob has written a wonderful book on Buddhism called Why Buddhism is True. And, you know, to, to sort of summarize that in a nutshell, I'd say the book tries to explain how mindfulness practice is a way of overcoming and transcending cognitive biases that very quickly contribute to a misperception of a dynamic that can often fuel and inflame tribalistic instincts. Um, that's a little bit of a, an oversimplification, but that's sort of uh, part of Bob's thesis. And it occurred to me that uh, even though Bob talks, you know, he puts out two or three podcast episodes himself a week with very highly decorated intellectuals, um, it occurred to me that, that Bob's own worldview really needed a, a better, tr- better treatment. Um, it, it, instead of being in a, in a dialogue with another public intellectual, I thought it would be good f- that if someone like me or somebody else could interview him to help him and give him ample time and space to unpack his own worldview, which I think is quite uh, relevant it's incredibly relevant to what's going on right now. So he and I started that project, which we're loosely calling the Dharma of Bob series. Uh, we started that project at the end of last year, and uh, at the time that this episode goes live, we'll be recording the third installment of that conversation. But uh, if one of the reasons I want to uh, continue to talk to Bob is that I, I really think more people, if, if we can start to understand sort of the historical roots of our own perceptual blind spots or our own perceptual illusions, perceptual illusions that are generated by various cognitive biases, then in developing a conceptual understanding and even getting a verbal fluency with some of these biases, we can all start to transcend them. And in transcending them, we hopefully can start to come back to uh, a sense of unified direction where we uh, start to act out of our own enlightened self-interest to preserve the sanctity and, and health of the whole. So in the show notes for this episode, I will include links to the first two installments of that series on the Dharma of Bob and I really uh, encourage, encourage you to check it out. I'm not going to release it on my own podcast. I've thought about that. Um, at some point it may happen, but there's enough else going on right now that I just need to focus on getting back into publishing episodes that you're used to with Dharma Talks and then interviews with guests from the spiritual world uh, that are relevant to like sort of the full spectrum spirituality that I'm trying to explore in this show. Um, but 
just to give you a preview now of what's to come this year, at least at the beginning of the year, uh, in the Sangha, and that's the, the online community of yin yoga and meditation practitioners that Terry and I work with through our site. Um, in the Sangha, we are starting this year with a kind of a, a several week series look at the difficult energies of practice, the difficult mind states, the challenging energies that really assail anybody that is looking deeply into the nature of their experience. These energies tend to be referred to with a heading, the hindrances. They're called the obstacles or hindrance to practice because they, when they're operative in our being, they tend to obstruct or prevent our access to stillness and samadhi. And, and, and that's the other topic that I want to get into earlier, or probably later this spring, which is stillness and samadhi. So last year, uh, we sort of ended the, the, the fall semester with a, a, a look into a yin approach or a receptive approach to practicing metta or friendliness or kindness or sometimes it's hybridized, the loving kindness practice. And the way I was teaching uh, metta there was not so much to repeat a few phrases over and over again and, and send those phrases to different recipients, like towards yourself, to your friend, to your partner, to your dog or child or a relative or a neighbor or something like that, but to more broadly uh, offer the intention of the phrase, say something like, may, may I be peaceful, but to, to offer the, the phrase towards how, you, how one relates to experience itself. So phrases that I was recommending to the group in the Sangha were things like, may I open to this experience with kindness? May I hold this moment with ease? May I practice generosity of attention within this unfolding? Just very general um, phrases that are oriented towards the content of experience in a moment-to-moment way. And then I wasn't encouraging people to repeat the phrase, but just to really articulate the phrase once and then relax within the phrase and sense, sense their connection to the moment through their heart. Um, and there's some other instructions upon that, but that's the basic gist of it, which is just to sort of use a phrase to set up and align around it an intention, but then to get quiet and feel where, how and where you get led based on the, the energy and aspiration of the intention itself. And... Um, I, I tested this out on a silent retreat that, I, that Terry and I taught online last December, and what I discovered was that, uh, and having taught several retreats now, I could really see a difference with this with this uh, sort of pedagogical um, shift or adjustment by starting with metta or kindness practice. And what I found was that the retreatants entered into samadhi or entered into quiet, still, calm spaces much, much more easily than what I experienced when I tried to enter samadhi through the traditional route of focusing attention. So whenever I tried to focus my attention on my breath or my mantra, it it could take several days of uh, sort of struggling and wrestling with my wandering mind before my my mind would calm down and get quiet. But uh, in this sort of different approach, by being gentle and receptive and kind to experiences as they were arising, 
I found, and I started to see this reflected in my students' experience, but I found that my mind would naturally calm down simply due to the fact that there wasn't any contention or resistance to what was arising. Um, content kept moving, but my experience became one very one. Sorry, my experience became very quiet and still in relationship to the content. And that's a, that's a different take or a different approach or a different avenue into samadhi, but one that I find very helpful. So from samadhi, or from metta, I should say, from kindness, I'm now going to be moving into a series of reflections on samadhi itself, the quality and experience of stillness. But to get there, uh, and this is very traditional in a, in a Buddhist sense, uh, it's important to come to terms with the obstacles to samadhi, namely the hindrances. And one of the things that I've been exploring and thinking about over this uh, winter break is that time and again in my own practice life, I've had conversations with people where when they talk about their meditation, they will mention noticing the hindrances. They'll, notice, they'll mention noticing the difficulties that are coming up. Say they get sleepy or their mind's chattering or they're getting really judgmental about something. And the tendency is to take the experience of these difficult states as confirmation that there's something wrong, or there's, there's a, it's a evidence that there's something wrong in the practice. Like you weren't able to stay focused on what you were trying to focus on, and this other thing kept distracting you or pulling you off and creating chaos. But the way I, um, I've been really approaching this for several years now, but putting a finer point on how I try to articulate it, I see that these energies are inevitable. They're, that they're part of what it means to be human, to experience desire, to experience aversion or dislike, to experience restlessness or anxiety, that they're all part and parcel of the hum human experience. They're part of our humanity. Um, and some manifestation of these energies are simply biological imperatives that you might feel pain in the body and want to move. You might have hunger and desire food. You might feel like kind of disengaged from your life and seek something that's more stimulating, more fulfilling, more enlivening. Um, so there, there could be sort of biological manifestations of these, uh, of these energies. And I don't think, sort of my newer thinking on this is that there's, there's really no harm and no shame or no, any, no, nor, nor any problem with sort of the, the basic biological manifestation of these energies. You know, we need to support ourselves with food and rest and, and um, good connection, good relationships. These are all vital to a flourishing life. But where I think they become an obstacle in life, where these energies become problematic is when they become kind of psychologically pathological. And just to, to, to loosely introduce this here, I would say the problem with desire isn't so much desire itself, it's when desire turns into a kind of addiction. When we're addicted to something, when our, our happiness is dependent on satisfying a particular craving, then we're hooked. That's the, what the hook is. Or with, with aversion, like a dislike of a, a pain in your knee or dislike of a really unpleasant sound, that's not a problem. But when that dis, disliking becomes you know, a hostile hatred, 
men, and particularly as we've seen last week in the news or two weeks ago, that hatred is incredibly destructive and, and problematic. Restlessness becomes a problem when it's really uh, kind of a, a unbridled anxiety. Uh, sleepiness or, or, or lethargy in practice is, could be very easily biologically based. But I think what, what I see now is the, is the mind state that's problematic around lethargy is really more akin to the energy of apathy. Like just being disinterested or not caring, being sort of blah, ho, hum about practice. It's that energy that makes life and practice challenging, apathy. And with, with doubt, which is the fifth hindrance, it's not so much that being skeptical is bad or being inquisitive and, and um, you know, really curious about what's going on and not taking things at face value. I see those as very wholesome qualities. But where, where doubt can become problematic is when it turns into kind of a cynicism or even nihilism, where, you know, just you assume everything's uh, negative or everything's bad or that there's no point and there's no reason for why you should do anything. So I'll be, I'll be trying to explore these in more depth over the next several weeks. We'll be exploring these in the Sangha uh, classes and the podcasts or the, uh, the Dharma talks that become podcasts from those from those classes and um, and in parallel uh, I'm hoping to pick Bob Wright's brain on his own podcast about his thoughts around this and see if we can't if, if he can't help me flesh out my own sort of inchoate understanding of all of this and those of you that are in the Sangha have already expressed great interest in this theme and I, I really do think that the more we can all, become responsible for these challenging energies in our practice, the more easily, my hope is, my, the more easily that you, the practitioner, the meditator, the yogi, yogini, will be able to have access to the inner richness of samadhi states. And particularly now, uh, if I were to, and there's many ways, things I could say about samadhi, but particularly now, uh, samadhi can be a real bomb. Um, it's not a way of hiding out and avoiding things, but it's a bomb that can help us heal and soothe ourselves in the midst of this turmoil so that we're better able and more equanimous to then confront what needs to be confronted. And let me be clear, this uh, kind of violence, this kind of intolerance, this kind of uh, sort of dereliction of duty and... and, and, and uh, I don't know, just utter disregard for the rule of law and for our institutional integrity. All of these things need to be confronted. Um, racism, white supremacy, all of these things need to be confronted. But we need to confront them in a way that will hopefully attenuate the divide, hopefully heal, and mitigate the, the escalating spiral of polarity and conflict we're all witnessing. That's a tall order. I don't, I don't pretend to have all the answers or even some of the answers. I'm, I consider myself a student of all of this, trying to find my way through it, and I invite you with me on that process. Um, and oh, by all means, please give me your feedback and thoughts with regards to that. Okay, as I look at the time, I realize I've been talking already much more than I intended to wasn't sure how 
it would feel to speak about any of this in kind of a, a free-form way when the mic started recording. Anyway, um, I am really looking forward to this year. I'm, I'm looking forward to all of us collectively turning the corner on much of the difficulties of 2020, although I, I do realistically think much of what we dealt with in 2020 is going to continue for quite some time in 2021, which is why our practice, our own capacity for resilience, and specifically how our practice can help nourish wise, compassionate engagement with these very, very difficult dynamics that are at play right now. Um, these are all reasons why practice really is not a luxury. Practice is vital to sustaining our own sanity, sustaining our ability to remain centered, clear, and kind. So I'm going to leave you now, and I wish you well. I wish you safety, health, and well-being. Uh, I feel like everybody I'm speaking to is struggling with something really major. Uh, and I've certainly had my doses of that over the last several months. In many ways, confronting this level of global dukkha, whether it's the pandemic or political strife or whatever shape it might take, this, there's something about this moment that, that feels fraught on a major level. And I'm reminded of, of uh, the great alto saxophonist Julian Cannibal Adderley, who in a recording from 1966 introduced the song written by his pianist Joe Zavinal. He said back in 66, there's a lot of things going wrong in our country. A lot of things are bad. But this song sounds like what you're supposed to say when you don't know what to say. And the song is called Mercy, Mercy, Mercy. I encourage you to check that out on YouTube. It's Cannibal Adderley, Live at the Club, Mercy, Mercy, Mercy. I'll probably include a link to that in the show notes too. But for now, be well, stay safe, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Thanks for your attention today, and keep very well.